Hey everyone, welcome, 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 welcome to another episode or another uh, diverse careers event. Um, my name is Toby. Welcome if this is the first time uh, you're, you're coming to one of these. And thank you so much for for joining. I'm going to show we're going to have a lot more people joining as we, as we go through the, the session. Um, but this one is all about building your dream career in tech. So if you're interested in a tech career, you've come to the, the right place. So I'm going to give you a quick overview for anyone who is new to Diverse or one of our events. And then we're going to dive straight into um, our uh, setup today, the topics that we've got set up for you. We're going to be asking John lots of questions. And you're going to have a chance to ask your questions as well. So first of all, if you, if you don't know, as I said, my name is Toby and I'm the founder of Diverse, which is an online careers community that we've set up to help students, graduates and young professionals uh, from underrepresented backgrounds into the corporate world in the UK. Um, and so we do that by hosting these careers conversations with, uh, with wonderful guests who know uh, their stuff on their, their given industries to give you the tools, the insights, and then also the very specific advice that you need to go and get the roles that you, you really want. Um, we also have job opportunities as well. So um, after this session, we'll email you those on, on a kind of a weekly basis. Uh, I've also pinned to the top of the chat. Um, actually, no, I've not pinned to the top of the chat. I've just pinned the words to the top of the chat, not the actual link. Um, so I'm going to rectify that now. Uh, Lola, if you could pin that link to the top, that would be amazing. Um, but after this session, if you are interested in a placement, a graduate scheme, a role in tech, then feel free to put into practice what you learned today and apply to, to one of those. Um, and fingers crossed for you. Um, today, we're going to be going over some different roles, some different career paths within the tech space. Um, we're going to be giving you sort of an insight as to some of the ways they differ and, and help you start to think about what might be right for you. And then we're going to give you some advice to help you actually go and get those roles. Um, and what we want you to do as well is provide questions. So you can see if you look to the top of your screen, there's a little question mark where you can add in your questions that you'd like uh, our expert, who I'll introduce in a moment, um, to answer. And it's really important, guys, do add those in throughout so that everyone else can vote for the questions that they want to be answered. Um, and that helps increase the likelihood that yours is going to get answered and do stick around to the end so you can get all of those uh those burning questions out of the way and um last thing guys i, I kind of always say this do really focus and engage you know we're only here for a, a short amount of time in this session and what you need to do is get the absolute most out of it this isn't one of your you know boring careers lectures that you sometimes go to maybe this is going to be um a game changer you know we want to go from not knowing a huge amount in terms of your correct career to kind of having a much better idea and, and feeling really confident to go and make that happen. So that's my ask to you uh, in terms of your commitment there. Um, but yeah, without further ado, let's introduce uh, John, who has kindly joined us from Unidays. John, do you want to let everyone know a bit about who you are and, and what you do at, at Unidays? Yeah, hi Toby, thanks for introducing me. Um, and no pressure at all in the build-up that this might be the game changer that changes everything for everyone. Um, so yeah, so my name is John Basil, so I'm the VP of um, Product and Engineering at Unidays which means that essentially my responsibility is everything that is what Unidays does. So getting it built, you know, making sure we're building the right thing, making sure we're building the thing in the right way and making sure it's what our members want and it works properly when they get it. Very, very good job. And I'll also introduce Lola as well, our community manager who maybe you've already met, but Lola, do you want to have a quick hello? 
Hey everyone, so I'm the community manager, super excited for this call and I hope it's going to be really insightful for you guys as well, but I'll be in the comments, um, so come and say hey. Awesome, and just as we get into this guys, do drop us a comment in the chat, letting us know which sort of areas within tech you think you might be interested in. Is it uh, product management? Is it AI? Is it software development? Is it engineering? Give us a bit of an idea of what you're looking for, whack that in the comments. And uh, I can see Emmanuel's just put in a question. Thanks for that. Keep the questions coming throughout. I can see uh, Hamdi is looking for uh, project management, product design, engineering. Awesome. Analytics. Keep, keep those coming. That'll be fantastic. So, John, why don't we start by talking about some of the common tech roles? Um, and I think the best place to start is probably software development. That seems to be one of the most popular areas. I can kind of see a lot of software development popping up already in the, in the chat. Um, what can you tell us, first of all, about software developer as a role? What does that really mean? You know, can you kind of talk us through that? And, and, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll kick things off there. Yeah, so I think, I mean, software developer is a role. It's a very broad term to begin with. You know, there's lots of different things that hide under the moniker of software development. You mentioned in your introduction, uh, AI. You know, everyone's excited about AI. AI is building software. Building a website is building software. You know, we tend to, when we talk about software, we tend to talk about front-end and back-end, where front-end is the things you see. So website, you know, what you see on a website is front-end. What drives what you see, the kind of data behind it, the decisions that go behind it, that tends to be called back-end. And, you know, some companies will differentiate between front-end and back-end. Some will merge them into one, and they'll look for something, something called a full-stack developer, which is someone who can do from end-to-end. -end. Uh, so software development is a really, it's a really broad term. Um, that covers a lot of different career paths, I think, for people. And I think this is one of the things that is exciting about software development. You know, it can cover lots of different things. It's also confusing because people come into it, you know, they've met somebody who, who does something and that person described themselves as a software developer. Um, and then they'll come along, they'll find a software development job and they'll be like, that's not quite what I was expecting. And then is it the same as a software engineer? You know, and you start to see all these different terms. There's no common term that's kind of agreed on you see software developer you see engineer you can add junior mid senior to all of those you can add leads to them there's lots of different terms and i think demystifying some of that one of the things that i got taught kind of quite early on was to not put terms into kind of a job that implied length of time you know so pe when people say I, I personally have a hatred of the word senior or something like that because what do you know when you're older that you didn't know when you're younger? If you know the right skills for the job, you've got the right skills for the job. So, you know, to try and focus on what it is that people do and what we want from them rather than how long they've been doing it for. So I think, yeah, software developer, it's very, it can be a very confusing term. It's a very broad term. Uh, it covers lots of different disciplines. And I think, you know, you really need to read beyond that first line to really understand what a role is. Mm, and you, you touched on one of my questions, which I thought was going to be maybe a bit of a, a stupid one, but it, it, what is the difference between a software engineer and developer or, or does it, to your point, sort of just vary by, by company? Yeah, it varies by company. It varies by, it, there can be some um, bias in there. I think, you know, some people will say a software engineer has more of an engineering discipline about them. You know, they tend to be more focused on that kind of problem solving mentality or taking pragmatic steps. But I think, you know, as, a, as any kind of software developer, you have to make those decisions. You know, one of the things about the life of a software developer is you're making decisions every single day. You're making small decisions and you have to make them as you go along. And so engineering development, you know, they're very, very similar concepts. 
And I think the differences are often very subtle. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's kind of what we want to get into a little bit, understanding what are these differences, what might we be suited to. And, and as I say, everyone uh, listening, do add your questions into the, the questions tab just to the right of the, the chat. And we'll make sure we'll get to, to all those questions uh, because we want to make this session as specific as we can to you and uh, do our best to answer those. I'm not a tech expert at all, which I think can be quite helpful because it means we get we get down to the real basics, which what I understand is, is really important from our last conversation. Um, so what would be amazing, I think, is, is to understand a little bit about what a developer actually gets up to. And of course, it varies quite a bit. Um, so maybe we we can talk about Unidays and any examples you've got there. So if I'm hired at Unidays, you know, as a software developer, maybe it's my my first sort of maybe graduate software role. What kinds of things am I going to be doing? I, I can kind of I know I'll be doing some coding, but you know, how, how exactly does that sort of fit into everything? What, what will that look like on a sort of day to day basis? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things here when when we start to talk about it is you know you mentioned about what would it look like at Unidays because the roles are very different. So it depends on what we call a methodology. So there are different ways of building software um, and people tend to get very passionate about different ways of building software. Actually, there are some different circumstances in which you use different techniques. So it's not really a case of, you know, some people like to take this as a very personal thing. This is the right way to build it or this is the right way to build software. But it depends really on what you're building and why you're building it. So in some cases, you'll be very clear on what you're building. You'll know exactly what it is. It's never going to change. And there's a very clear path from where you are today to where you want to be. In other cases, which tends to be the majority of cases in most companies, you're a bit less clear on what you're building and it changes frequently. And that's okay as well. And you would behave differently in that situation. So at Unidays, you know, we take that approach and we accept the fact that life moves quickly, the business moves very fast. And so what we think today and what we think in three, six months time will change. It will evolve every day, every week. And so we build a process that acknowledges that and accepts that. And so as a, as a developer, you know, you'd come in every day. The first thing that we would tend to do is we tend to do a little bit of a, a check-in to make sure everyone's okay and to look at how did we get on yesterday? What are we planning to do today? And just to make sure as a team that we can help each other. You know, it might be that I've got something I need to do today that you don't know I need to do. But actually, you've done it before or you've got some really good insight that I didn't know you have. So me saying, right, so today I'm going to do X, Y and Z. You might say, oh, hey, you know why? I've done that. I've got I know how to do that. And you can really help me. So just that little bit of visibility of what everyone's doing. Um, so we'll talk about that. And at that point, we'll also look at anything that's stopping us from progressing. Um, and then we'll see if we can fix those problems so that we can make sure that we're always moving forward. We'll then spend and, and Sorry, Toby. Oh, pay for it, John. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, well, my, my one question just on that was going to be sort of when, when you say doing something and building, that's essentially me maybe by myself writing code in between these meetings, essentially, to, to build something. Yeah, so, like I mean, you might be by yourself or we, sometimes we, we work in something called pair programming, uh, which means that two people work together. Um, so this can be a really good way of working for certain kinds of problems as well, where literally two people will share a screen and they'll work together and they'll share turns of the keyboard. And this has a lot of advantages in terms of making sure you're doing the right kinds of things, making sure you're not making mistakes, making sure you're asking some of those questions that maybe you wouldn't think of if you were writing on your own. Um, and so you tend that tends to have a very good effect on the, the quality of what you're producing. 
It's also great if you're not 100% clear on what you're doing, you can ask each other questions and bounce off each other. It's also phenomenally exhausting. I mean, it's really, you'd be surprised because one of the things I think most people don't realize is when you're working day to day, you know, you take lots of little mental breaks you don't realize you take. You glance out the window, you grab a coffee, you check your email, you check your phone. You know, all of these are little mental breaks where you kind of let yourself off from focusing for a second. If you're working side by side with somebody, you don't tend to do those things. And so it's a really interesting, I did an experiment with this at a company I worked at uh, probably about 10 or so years ago. And we decided we wanted to try to work in this way just to spread the knowledge better. It's a really good way of getting people to share knowledge. It's a great way to educate people, to bring them up to speed. And we wanted to see how this would work for us. So we did a week and I put two of the kind of best developers together and said, I want you to pair program together for a week um, and let's see how that goes. By Friday lunchtime, I had two shells of human beings who were sitting at a terminal and I basically had to send them home because they were so tired because in all of that week, they'd never had those breaks. They'd never stopped for a coffee. They'd never, they'd, they'd never gone to the bathroom. They'd never checked their phones. They'd never checked their email because they didn't want to ask the other person if, they, if they're okay with them doing it. So the focus had been so great, they were just exhausted. Wow, incredible, incredible. And I guess they're enjoying what they're doing because it sounds like a you know, problem-solving, creative um, uh, sort of challenges. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. It's great. And you, like I say, you learn a lot from each other because one of the things about software is you're solving problems all the time. Now, because it's a very creative endeavor, you will be, different people have different approaches to solving the same problem and you still get to a solution, but there'll be different solutions. So while you're doing that, you might be you might be batting ideas off of each other and saying, well, I'd do it this way. Well, I'd do it this way. Well, why would you do that? Well, why would you do that? And so, you know, you're really learning a lot as you go and you're learning a lot of new things as you go along, no matter how experienced you are. But that's just one way of doing it. You know, in a lot of companies, that's overly expensive because it feels like a lot of investment because you're using two people to solve one problem. So in a lot of places, you know, you will... Once you understand the problem that you want to solve and you've spoken to the people you need to to understand that problem, you will be then sitting down and writing that code on your own until you get to a point where you'll then review it with somebody. Hmm. So it's a slightly different process. You would still go through a review cycle, but you do the review afterwards rather than during. Brilliant. So there's kind of a lot of obviously uh, sort of going out there and, and trying to solve this problem, coming back to the team, sort of uh, discussing what you've built and how you've built it. and. We're going to talk about some of the other roles that are involved in the process yeah. as well. Um, how do you, how would someone think about whether they would be well suited to software development? Of course, there's lots of uh, variability by company and if yeah. it's peer review, if it's peer or, or sort of um, you by yourself, but is there any sort of general things that we can share, which is, you know, this is typically what software developers are, are like or, or how you know you're suited to software development? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you are a problem solver, if you do like solving problems, then I think, you know, that's a good indicator um, because it is very much a problem solving discipline. You know, you do get that kick where you've been spending a long time looking at something and then all of a sudden the solution comes clear. And if that's the kind of thing that you really enjoy, then it's a good indicator that, that you might be. You know, you're going to need to be comfortable to spend some time on your own, sitting at your terminal, you know, working out, writing code, trying it seeing it failed, trying it again, finding that failed too, thinking of another avenue. You know, it's kind of like um, almost kind of running through a labyrinth and you're running down a path and you hit a wall and you go, oh, I need to back up and go back to here and then start again, oh, another wall. And you keep going until you find the exit. And if, 
if you don't get frustrated by keep hitting walls, but you do get elated when you find the exit, then probably it's a career for you. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much happen. about that problem solving and you know trying different things until you find the path forward. Yeah, it's almost like if you're you know the, when you're you're stuck on a level on uh, you know um, Super Mario or something or Rain Man, and it's kind of like a bit of a puzzle. You know, you, you, it's that type of challenge the personality type you got to keep playing you know you got to keep playing and to get it get it, get it. right so exactly you know, you're playing super mario you've got two choices you either keep playing and you keep going through again and again and again or you find a cheat code if you mm. find a cheat code probably software development isn't for you uh, if you okay. like to keep going until you've got it right and particularly if you like to keep going and make sure you're collecting you know every little treasure along the way then it probably definitely is for you Mm. Okay, so so maybe a con then is because I, I wanted to ask you about sort of pros and cons. Maybe yeah. and, and I think we've got a lot of pros already. So con is maybe you know, well, I imagine it's very difficult, it's very challenging. I've experienced it with Super Mario, not with software. <laughs> but, but once you hit that wall and you can't get past it, that must be tough. Are, are there any any thoughts on that or any other sort of you know yeah, what? This is the tough side of it. It can be frustrating. You know, you, you can spend a very very long time searching searching for problems, and I think you know that potentially is the downside of it is the fact that if you if you do spend a long time looking for one problem you've got to be quite methodical you know i remember my very first role um i i managed to find myself in the position of being an expert in something after only being in a company for about a year and there was nobody else who knew better and i hit this very 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 frustrating problem that took me about a month to solve and basically what what the situation was was um I was trying to test some software for a video. It was a, I mean, this kind of shows how old I am, but it was a, it was for a video phone. Um, and I was trying to test it on a, a chipset that we've made within the company. And so I was writing code that ran on this chip and the, what was coming up on the screen didn't reflect anything that was happening in the camera. And I couldn't work out what was broken between the two. And I was convinced I was doing something wrong, but there was nobody to help me. So I had to keep going through and going, have I done this right? Have I done this right? Am I making sure that this is going from here to here correctly? And I had to break it down into really small chunks until I was 100% sure that I hadn't made a mistake. And then, this, like I said, this took me about a month to really get to the point where I could prove from the camera to the screen I was doing nothing wrong. And then it turned out, you know, then I was confident to go back and go, the chip's broken. It's not me. And it turned out that the chip had been designed wrongly and we needed to go and redesign a whole chip which was a half a million pound investment. Um, but it's one of those- That things sounds things. devastating. <laughs> it, was, it was frustrating, you know, and I had to keep like really yeah. methodical notes on what I was doing to be able to go, no, I really have done everything. Because if I'd have turned around on day one as the junior boy in the team and said, hey, you know, um, I think the chip's a bit faulty, everyone would have just laughed at me. So I think it- There you go, that, yeah. Um, but I can imagine. And that must be so frustrating because there's nothing you could have done to fix that. That was just like a, you know, a fault in the, in the system, basically. So, yeah, oh. but at the same time, you know, I, I find that rewarding because at the end of the day, I managed to prove something that there was no other way of discovering. There was no other way of knowing that chip was wrong. And so, you know, I, I felt like I'd done a good job at the end of it because I'd proved something that wasn't otherwise provable. But that's, you know, there's, there's the con right there frustrating i didn't really actually achieve anything that moved what i was doing forward uh, but i did move the whole project forward so it can be frustrating I, it yeah. can be difficult 
you know, and you are, it's astonishing how many micro decisions you have to make all day, every day, because you're forever, as a software engineer, you're forever covering for the fact that other people aren't always specifying what they want as accurately as you would like. And if you keep going back, because you've got to look at every little detail, because you're writing the code that makes something happen. And if you keep going back and saying, hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? People get really annoyed with you quite quickly. So you've really got to learn the context of what you're doing, really think about what you're trying to achieve and make those decisions to move it forward. And no one really ever appreciates the level of decision-making that you have to do all day, every day. Yeah, I imagine you can only really appreciate it if you're, if you're actually sort of doing it. So, um, and there are a couple of other roles I definitely want to, to touch on as well. Um, as I said, and if anyone's just joined recently, I know a few people have just jumped in. Um, we're talking to, to John, who's the VP of Engineering at Unidays, um, talking through lots of different roles, some of the pros, some of the cons, and then we'll go into advice on how you actually get those those roles. Um, do drop your questions into the questions tab, and we'll get to those at the end. Let us know, make them uh, specific, and we'll, we'll aim to answer them if we can. We might not uh, be able to answer all of them, but we'll see what we can do. And uh, rather than put them in the chat, put them in the, the questions tab. And if there's anything you want to send over to me, uh, do mention that in the chat as, as well. So, uh, John, another role that I wanted to talk about. And a couple of these roles, I think, are maybe a little bit less well-known, a little bit less sought after as your software developer and your software engineer roles. They're a lot less talked about, which I would imagine makes them much less competitive. And I think if there's a lot of people listening, trying to get those first few, you know, developer, engineer sort of roles or, you know, tech, tech, tech roles, these might be uh, another way to go. So the other one is agile delivery. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about that? Please, John? Yeah. So um, in it, so we talked a little bit uh, earlier on about the different ways of delivering software, you know, and I talked about the fact that in some in some projects that you do, you will know a lot upfront and nothing changes very much. In other projects, there's a lot more change. Um, so when you've got a project that's got a lot more change and things are prone to change frequently as well, you'll use one of a number of techniques that's known as agile software delivery. And agile is really about being able to be responsive to change. Uh, it's a very, very, very overused term. Uh, most people who work in software, if you, if you mention the A word, will kind of shiver and shy away from it because it's so overused. People use it to their advantage. You know, it's like, oh, I need this to be agile, which basically means I need you to do it half the time as possible. <laughs> <Brilliant. Yeah. laughs> um, but what, you know, in the, in the truest sense of the word, it's really about being able to be responsive to business change. So if you're doing that, one of the most important things, you know, is you start to look at, at agile, and there's an agile manifesto, which is a really interesting read about everything that often is wrong in software delivery. Um, but Agile is really about making sure that people are always productive. You know, what is the thing that you can do that is most productive? How do you deliver value into an organization? Um, and one of the things that stops software developers being productive is, it's called waste in, in Agile terms, but it's basically, it's all the noise that goes around doing your job. You know, it's when things don't work. It's when you don't quite understand what you've got to do. It's when you've sent an email to somebody and they didn't reply. It's when you just get caught up in a horrible problem and you've, you know, like the problem I was talking about earlier, but you just get your head right into it and you can't pull yourself out. It's when the team aren't working as a team and you're trying to resolve that. And so what, what most teams will do is they'll have an agile delivery manager or a scrum master whose, whose job it is to basically make the team work better. So it's, it's, a, it's a great job for getting into sort of tech companies. 
it's a really it's an inward facing role within a team that really focuses on making that team more productive, making that team work better. Um, so it's really about understanding what's going on in the team, helping to manage relationships within and without. You know, it's an agile delivery, someone who wants to be an agile delivery manager has to enjoy building relationships with people because they're going to be building relationships between lots of different groups of people, you know, making sure that they can unblock people when they get blocked, making sure they understand what the team needs to deliver and what it takes to make the team more effective and more efficient at doing that. I see. So they're, they're essentially the ones pulling everyone together, make sure everyone's aligned and, um, ensuring we're building what we need to build in, all the tasks are getting done and that, that kind of thing. So what, how technical does that individual need to be? So if I'm looking for an entry-level role um, in this sort of tech space, to be an agile delivery, do I need to uh, know a lot about coding? You know, what is the level of tech expertise you'd be thinking so about that? It, it does depend on the company. Um, but generally, you know, certainly for most of the companies where I've been implementing these kinds of techniques, we tend to employ people who are not technical. So it'll be people who understand the process. It'll be people who understand, you know, they might understand a bit of the tech space. They're not developers, they're not coders. Um, they might understand a bit about the business space. Um, I, I, when I worked for GIFCAF, we, we brought people from all over the business to be our agile delivery managers because they really understood what, what we were trying to do. And so therefore they detached themselves from the mechanism of actually doing it. And they could really focus on making sure we were effective. And actually, because GIFCAF is a very kind of community-driven company, um, we, we brought people from within the community to be those agile delivery masters, the scrum masters. And they were excellent because they really understood the ethos of the company. Um, and so, you know, it's a very, it's a very varied role. You know, you've got to want to be around technical people, but you don't have to be technical yourself. Brilliant. I think that's perfect because I think a lot of what we're going to probably be talking about is the more technical side of things. But if you are in the audience and you're listening and you're thinking uh, you love tech, but maybe you're not all the way into the sort of code and, and uh, you know, a tech sort of junkie like, like John is, then that could be a way into the tech space. Uh, without having to go all the way into that code. So that might be um, similar to people who maybe talk about it being interested in product management or project management. It's that sort of support, supportive, collaborative role alongside that. Uh, John, follow up a question on that, because as we think further into our careers then, um, the, the roles you've mentioned so far, you know, is there a big difference then in terms of the progression? So if I start in agile delivery, for example, and we'll, we'll get on to uh, QA engineering as well and maybe a bit of product management. Does, does that sort of really determine what happens at the top of the sort of pyramid? Um, you know, or do we find, you know, CTOs being from all sorts of different areas of, of, of the, the roles that we've mentioned so far? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it depends on the, the kinds of companies we're talking about. You know, as I say, software engineering is a, is a broad discipline. The types of companies you come across are very broad. People look for different things. You know, we've talked about, um, with an agile delivery manager, with a scrum master, some people will look for people with a development background. You know, for, for me, it's not something that's really important. And I think, you know, some of the success I've seen proves that. But some companies will look for somebody who's got that development background. And I think as you start going, as you say, towards the top of the pyramid, again, the skills you're looking for are very different. You know, they used to be, if you go back in the industry, again, probably 20 years, um, there was always this understanding that all these careers kind of funneled up 
And it was like, you know, if you were a software developer, you'd be a software developer, you'd become a senior software developer. Then you had to go into management, which kind of always amused me because, you know, people in those days would always kind of look at a software developer and go, those are the people who don't like humans. They don't like talking to people. They don't like dealing with people. They sit in the corner, you know, they tap away, they write code, and they just don't like humans. And so you go, well, now you're really good at not liking humans. We should make you a manager. And often that failed and everyone wondered why. And I think, you know, nowadays we're much better at understanding these are two different skill sets, right? So there are people who like to get their head into code and they like, that's all they want to do forever. And we need to provide career paths for those people because the software industry in general learns really slowly. It's a really bizarre thing for, for what is a learning industry. It actually learns really slowly as an industry. And the reason it learns really slowly is because going back, once you got to 28, 30, everyone would go, great, you know, you've done your 10 years as a software developer, you've got really good at it, now you should be a manager. Go and deal with humans. And actually, all of that learning that had happened in the 10 years got lost. So it's like now we're bringing some more graduates or some more young people, and they can then go and learn those lessons again as if no one had ever learned them before. And then once they've learned them, we'll make them managers as well. And so people have lost all of these lessons, whereas now I think we're much better at saying, no, do you know what? Now you've learned all those lessons. That's great. You know, now you've learned those. Now go and get better at them. You know, be excellent forever. And I think there are now two career paths and there are two different kinds of people. There are those who do absolutely want to stay technical and, you know, they really don't want to do anything else. And there are those people who do have more of an interest in getting into the management side of things, working with the developers themselves, working with other people, building careers and building strategy. You know, and those people go into those um, what we traditionally call higher up positions. And I know, you know, people would argue they are higher up, but I think, I, I, you know, I tend to always like to think of it in a team is there's a number of roles in the team. You know, we have to have somebody who's working on strategy. We have to have somebody who's working on QA. We have to have somebody who's working on code. And so it's very much a collaborative thing rather than a hierarchical thing. But I think, Toby, I think anyone who's been in and around those teams can elevate into those positions. There's not a criteria that says, yes, you've got to have done 20 years of software development or eight years of software development to be a VP of engineering or to be a CTO. You know, again, some companies will demand that, but I think if you've been in and around those disciplines, if you think about what the role of a CTO or a VP of engineering will do, it's not about coding. So if you've been around, if you understand, you can understand the problems of coding without ever having coded. So I don't think it's necessarily as black and white as saying, yes, you can do this and you can't do this. It's more about mm. the experience you've got on the way to that point. That's brilliant. That's good to know that it's not so incredibly fixed. So it almost releases the pressure a little bit on that first initial decision on which job you make. And it's also good to think that both personality types as a developer can be sort of catered towards, you know, yeah. if I you know, want to stay in my silo and just sort of build, then I can do that. If Lola prefers to the more sort of collaborative, the strategy, the, you know, um, managing the teams and that kind of things, then that's a very different skill set, very different personality yeah. type. So yeah. that's good to know that both paths are sort of available to me. Well, not me, because I can't talk about that. But someone. We can work on that. I'm very bad at uh, following instructions. That's one of my biggest weaknesses. So I wouldn't even put together like IKEA furniture. So I don't know. Coding seems like a lot of, lot of instructions. You know, a lot of steps. I get a bit scared by that. Ethical hacking. That's what you need. 
Okay, okay. Interesting. You don't have to follow any instructions. You just rebel. It's anarchic coding. That's, that's the thing for you. Okay, okay, okay. That's my thing. Well, I was good at Super Mario and actually Mario Kart. I was actually one of the best in the world at one point, but we'll save that story for another day. Um, the next one I've got on my list is QA engineer. Could you yeah. give us a, a quick rundown of what the heck that means? Because that wasn't one that I'd, I'd ever heard of before. Yeah, so I mean, for, for QA engineer, if you, again, if you think about somebody, going back to sort of the beginning of my story, so we're, we're starting to talk about how do we know what to write? How do we know what to, to write when we're writing code? So you know, there'll be conversations that will happen around the business. You, know, you maybe talk to a product manager, you'll talk to other stakeholders within the business, and the developer will then go off and write some code that he or she believes will, will do what is wanted. The QA engineer will then be the person who checks to see if that's the right thing, if it works, and who cares about those little details about, you know, it's great, but does it work on the fourth Friday of every month at 3 a.m.? You know, what are those, where are those edge cases where it stops working? You know, have you paid attention? Have you actually interpreted the instructions correctly? You know, have you, have you added your own? You know, what are those things that, what are those things that are going to matter to the customers and to the members, to the users that maybe you've glossed over as a developer because they weren't important, because you didn't understand them, because they were poorly communicated? The Q engineer is very much about being that glue. And I think one of the things that's really interesting with, with Q engineers is they're starting to come earlier and earlier in the cycle. So you'll often see, you'll often hear people talk about it as, you know, you get some requirements and you write some code and somebody comes along and they do the QA, they do the testing. Nowadays, increasingly, the QA people come to the front of the cycle. So you write the tests alongside the requirements or sometimes even instead of the requirements. So the QA person then becomes that gatekeeper of the requirements. And that has a lot of benefits. There's a lot of benefits with moving that QA piece earlier in the cycle. Um, and then essentially the, the developer then comes along and they know very precisely what they're building because it's specified in the tests that they have to pass. And then the, it's, we talk a lot about a definition of done because you know when you're writing software, when are you done? When are you finished? And if you if you start to install this discipline of QA coming earlier in the cycle, then your definition of done becomes, did you pass the test? If you pass the test, then you're good. And so I think you know the, the QA person is really the person who is ultimately responsible for making sure what the customer sees is good. You know, they're not writing the code, but they are having a say in, is that code good enough to be put in front of a customer? And I think, again, the, the wording there is really important. You will hear people say the QA person is responsible for what the customer for, for the, the customer quality and for the customer sees, but they're not writing the code. They're just making sure that what goes out is good enough quality and feeding that back through the cycle if it's not. Interesting, and, and I think when you when you talk this through with, with me, John, I initially thought that doesn't sound as sort of glamorous as the more creative like development side of things, but then you kind of explained. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the sort of pro of this sort of role seems to be, number one, you get to really think about the customer and, and, and that's always quite interesting if you are a customer yourself to put yourself in the customer's shoes. But then number two, you get to kind of like try and break things or, you know, see if things break. And that sounds quite appealing to me. So, yeah, any any thoughts on and, and I guess you're the type of person that needs to have that attention to detail, you know, spot these things that that needs to be like that. And it's not and, and those kind of traits i imagine as well but any any thoughts on any of that yeah i mean attention to detail is really important 
for somebody in, in quality, it's a really, really important trait. I think also having an understanding of context is really important because in any software, there are going to, you're going to be able to find a problem. And if you try hard enough, you will find a problem. And there is, there is always a question of, is that problem important? You know, yes, it's a problem, but is it really important? Because going back to my uh, slightly glib statement earlier, if the software only breaks on the third Friday of the month at 2 a.m., if there's a blue moon, it's probably not that important. Whereas if it breaks when three people start to try and use it, then it probably is quite important. And you need, so as a QA, you've got to take that into context as well. But I think, you know, yes, there is, there is this element of caring about all of those little edge cases, all of those details that a software developer might gloss over. And, you know, you've really got to care passionately about those customers, about making sure they're having the best experience uh, and about looking at the things that other people might not notice. You know, really caring about those small details. And I think one of the things we haven't talked talk about is the fact that there are different types of QA engineer as well. So there are manual QA engineers, which is where you literally take and, and anything. It could be a website. It could be a piece of software that drives a, um, an iPad. It could be a piece of software that drives a remote control car. And you'll, you'll literally test out the features until you find something that doesn't quite behave like you want to. So to go back to your Super Mario example, Toby, you know, you would sit play Super Mario, a, a games QA, manual QA um, engineer, will sit and play the game to the end and keep playing it, trying different things out to try to break it. Um, but then there'll be automated QA engineers, and they, they are effectively coders. They're writing code to mimic what a manual QA would do. So when you're writing a website, you know, you can, you've got a website that's up, you can look as a manual QA, you can, you can go around, you can interact with it at all the different levels to see if there's a problem. Whereas an automated QA engineer would, would write code to do that. So write code to go around, press every button, put input into every field, um, try it, see what happens, see what happens if you do it really fast, see what happens if you do it really slow. And they would automate that whole process. So there's two different types. And I think, you know, as we start to talk about different careers and how you get into them, you know, obviously with an automated um, role, you need to know a little bit about writing that, that code and those scripts. With a manual role, you don't. So a manual role can often be a very good entry point for people. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Sign me up for that manual gaming <laughs> testing role. That sounds, that sounds more like my cup of tea so far. Um, awesome. And uh, as I say, everyone keep, keep the questions coming. Uh, there's some fantastic ones in there uh, already, but um, please do well. We, as I say, well, we have John, you know, he is a, a fantastic individual to have on here as a, a VAP and engineer at, at Uniday. So don't miss out on this opportunity to get your questions answered. Um, no silly questions. I'm asking the silly questions on purpose to make you feel even more comfortable with my ridiculous questions. So uh, please don't feel shy at all. Drop those questions in and we'll get to them very shortly. Now that we've had to think about the different roles, John, and what they mean, what they're going to be like on a day-to-day basis, how should we think about where to start in terms of the company? So an Amazon versus a Unidays versus a startup. How, how should that sort of affect my decision? I think you, that's something you mentioned is it's quite interesting, something that you wanted to talk, uh, touch on in terms of making that decision, maybe where you might be suited to, to kind of start your tech career. Yeah, yeah. different people are suited to different companies. I think this is one of the most important things, you know, and I, this is what we were talking about the other day, is I think it's really, really important that people understand this because 
it's really easy when you apply for a job, especially when you apply for your first job, to get disheartened really fast if it doesn't work out how you expect. But I think one of the really, really key things is that different people are suited to different roles. So the fact that you didn't get a software engineering job at Amazon, to use the example that you mentioned, Toby, it doesn't mean that you're not suited for a software engineering job somewhere else. And I think this is a step. It's really easy for me to, to say this, you know, with a bit of experience behind me and being able to make those choices. But I think it's something that's really important. You won't be suited to every role. You know, you might have a company which is has a lot more structure about it, is very formal and expects you to go through certain gates and to tick boxes in certain ways. And that will work for some people. Some people will love the rigor and discipline. I have somebody in my team who, who said to me the other day, you know, I really want to be driven hard. I want to be held with my feet to the fire. I want to be made accountable for everything I do. I've got other people who don't want that. And they're much more like, yeah, you know, be nice to me, help me, coach me along the way, mentor me, look after me, you know, but just, you know, be, be kind and be softer. And I think people are suited to different types of roles. You know, I'm personally suited to a role where I can express my personality. And I think most people are to an extent. And if you put me in a role where I've got lots of boxes to tick and I know exactly what I'm going to do, I can do that role, but I won't be happy and you won't get me you'll get a carbon copy of the job description. And I think this is the important thing is to understand there are these different types of company. If you go to a startup, you know, you will, you will have a certain kind of pressure, uh, but there will be a lot of flexibility around the edges of your role. You know, you won't have so much discipline. You won't have so much process around, and you will be asked to do things that maybe don't technically fall in your job description. And some people love that. I love the broad role. You know, I love being able to, to flex my muscles in different areas to do different things. If you go to a more formal, bigger company, a financial institution, Amazon, Google, Facebook, your role will be much more tightly defined. And so I think, you know, really understanding where you would fit within that is really important. Again, if you go to, to an Amazon, uh, when you go through the job interview process, there'll be some very, very, very specific questions they'll ask you about experience, about knowledge. If you go to a startup, it will quite often be a lot less rigorous in that regard you know we would generally look for people who are smart they don't have to have necessarily specific experience if you're looking for somebody relatively junior to come in you know i'm looking for people who are enthusiastic who are passionate who are keen to learn who can prove they can learn you know maybe they've got a project they've done which isn't directly relevant to what we're doing but it proves that it proves the kind of things that they can do and it proves that you know as we start to make that investment that person will, will get up to speed quickly. They'll come along the way. They'll be excited. They'll be enthusiastic. And that's much more what we would look for. You know, it doesn't have to be so specific. Absolutely. And I think that that first point that you mentioned is something that people definitely shouldn't brush over. You know, you apply for that role at Amazon and you kind of heard what John said, but you're thinking, ah, you know, I, I, I failed there. I wasn't able to get that role. But actually, you know, it's so, so important, actually. You know, that might be a really, really good thing for you because that role it, it may, might not be suited to the way you like to work. So in a way, they've sort of, it's it can be a very good thing when you don't get a role that, you know, the employer doesn't think you're suited to because that opens you up to get, you know, a fantastic role at Unidate instead, you know, so that might be more suited to you. So. <laughs> no, I think, honestly, it's one thing. I think if people take one thing out of this, that would be amazing if that was the one thing they took because I think it's the one thing, it's the hardest lesson of all. You know, the fact that you didn't get job A doesn't mean you can't do the job. It just means you might not be suited to that company. 
you know, and I've certainly got jobs and been rejected from jobs and gone, yeah, that was the wrong company. Yeah, there's been a couple of times you get a, re- I, in fact, actually my very, very, very first rejection uh, when I was at school, I applied for a sponsorship for university. Um, and I went to this company, I visited them for a couple of days and it was awful. It was absolutely horrific. It was all kind of big process software engineering and driving big machinery. And I hated the two days I spent with them. But because I didn't want to fail, I didn't know how to feel when I came home. And when the letter came through the post about a week later, and my mum excitedly kind of brought it to me, it was so thin. There was, it was only one thing. And the sense of relief that went over me as I realized it was a rejection was enormous because I was like, if they'd have accepted me, I, I would have taken it. You know, there's no doubt I would have taken it and I would not have been happy. And it probably would have affected my whole career. Um, but instead they rejected me, which was hard at the age of 17. Uh, but actually even then deep down, I was like, this is right. This is the right thing I need. And I think it's just such a tough lesson to learn, but you won't be suited to every company. And most companies will be better at spotting that. It's only initially than you are. So if you do get rejected, it just means you're not fit for the company. It doesn't mean you can't do the job. Hugely, hugely important. And I think um, let's dive a little bit deeper into the application side of things. And there's a lots of questions around that. But before before Lola kind of pulls out a few, and, and one of them is def- definitely related to this, are there any examples you want to share of um, how individuals have maybe in the past really sort of wowed you in these application processes, done things that are a bit outside the box to get hired and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it, it very much comes down to the different types of things that you're looking for. And I say, because, so in my background, I've tended to work for some big companies and some small companies. I've tended to move between companies when I feel like I've got something new I need to learn. Um, but I think, you know, one one example, uh, which is probably very useful, is one of the companies I was working at, um, we were a startup, we were growing quite fast. I think we were about 85 people at that point, And we were looking to hire a, a developer. Um, with a certain skill set. And we knew exactly what the skill set we wanted was. And we were struggling to find people as fast as we wanted to, which is always the case. Um, And we put an advert on our website. We just relaunched our website and we put an advert out on the website. If anyone's interested, please apply here. These are the skills we're looking for. And we went off and we carried on like startups do. We got busy. And about two weeks later, someone said, hey, we never checked that inbox to see if anyone's applied for the job. And we went back to the inbox and there was an application in there. And we were like, oh no, when did that person send it? And they'd sent it like 10 days beforehand. And we're like, we've disrespected this person. Like we, we owe this person a fair hearing. And so we invited them in for an interview. And then we looked at their CV and their CV was completely wrong. It had none of the skills we wanted. It was almost, almost the opposite of what we wanted, but uh, it was a software engineer at least, but he just didn't have the right skills that we were looking for. So we, we brought him in and we, we gave him the written test that we gave to everybody, which obviously he failed because he didn't have the right skills. So we knew he'd failed, but we knew this when we put him through it. We gave him a, an interview anyway off the back of it. And he was amazing. He was passionate, enthusiastic. He cared. He was smart. He was a really good problem solver. And he, you know, he said, you know, if you want me to be great at this language, I'm not yet. But, you know, it's a language I can learn it. Um, but here's some examples of what I've done some learning. Here's some of the things I've done. And he, he really impressed us with just his approach to everything and 
how relaxed he was about having to learn, you know, a new skill that he didn't know because he'd got all these examples of where he learned things really fast and how he'd used them and how he'd applied them. And we showed him out the door at the end of the interview and he went off to go to pick up his car in the car park. And we were literally looking out the window going, is it too early to phone him now to tell him he's got the job? And we're like, yeah, we can't do that because, you know, if we phone him too quickly, he'll want more money. And so we then kind of said, okay, cool. We'll leave it five minutes. And then we were, oh no, hold on. If we leave it five minutes, he'll be driving home. So we can't call him then because he'll be driving and we can't call him while he's driving. And so then we were kind of worked out where he lived and we worked out how long it would take to drive there. Um, and then we kind of said, okay, cool. He's home now. We can phone him and we can offer him the job. So we offered him the job and he was incredible. He came and he was amazing. And I employed him in about three companies after that. So, you know, it was a really, really good example of, of how that worked. I love that. I love that. And that's a, a great lesson. And to, in terms of thinking about applying, thinking about getting those jobs, even if you don't necessarily match perfectly the job description, sometimes you just got to go for it. And especially if you are passionate and you are keen, you're doing things in your own time, you're willing to learn, you're practicing, and that can be hugely valuable. And, and that in itself can get you interviews and, and clearly get you jobs as well. Um, so I love that, that story. And I think, sorry, if I can add one thing there, Toby, I think that's the benefit of finding the right company as well. Yeah, that goes back to what I was saying about the company. If you find the right company where you're the right fit, he was the right fit. He was the right person. So the skills were less important. And it's something that I tend to look for quite a lot when I'm hiring. You know, it's not always. Sometimes you're hiring and you want a very specific skill set and that's all you want. But a lot of the time, especially when you're investing in bringing people into a team, the actual skills aren't that important because you know it's tech the skills were rolled on in 18 months time in two years time so having the right person in the team is much more important got it that's super important everyone everyone make a good note of that so lola do you want to start pulling out some of the the questions we've got in the questions tab and we'll run through those quite quickly john's got a little bit more time to go past the hour mark which is good because we like to we like to keep going so uh lola do you want to pull out some some questions yeah, of course. So the first one is from Williams and is what is the best way to network and meet other software engineers or developers? And um, so I think I think there's a number of ways. Obviously, there's communities online. You can get involved in open source projects and things like that. But I think there's also a lot of meetups. So I think starting to get involved in some meetups locally in your area or in the area in which you wish to work. You know, obviously, nowadays, one of the benefits, if I can say that, of COVID is that a lot of the meetups are partially online, partially virtual. Some of them are wholly virtual. And so, you know, you can dial in, you can start to meet people that way. And I think getting involved in those kind of communities works really well. Because if you're in a meetup at a subject you're passionate about, whether it be a language, whether it be an application of that, whether it just be software development in general, you'll meet a lot of people who are in similar positions. And if you're looking for a role, a lot of those people may actually be hiring. And if you can go and you can show your passion in those meetings, you'll get noticed and people say, hey, you know, what are you up to? You know, and you can then start to talk to them. And they'll be like, well, we've got roles. And then you've got an in. You've got a way into the company, which isn't just about going through the career side. You've got almost like a sponsor within the company. And I think that can be really important. You know, for me personally, again, I value a recommendation really, really highly. A recommendation is half an interview to me. Because if I've got people on my team who recommend somebody in, who's going to be working with them, they're not going to recommend somebody bad because it's going to affect them in their day-to-day -day work. So therefore, I know they trust and they believe in that person. So if you can start to meet people through that kind of community, demonstrate what you can do and what you know and what you're passionate about to them, then 
if they then start to introduce you into their company, that's going to count for a lot. Cool. No, I love that. Um, the next one is from Emanuela, and it's, is it useful to put projects you've worked on on your CV? Um, and if so, should you go into detail? For example, let's say when you're hiring someone and you're looking at their CV, would you want in-depth details from projects, maybe from what they've done at university or something like that? Um, I think, I don't think you need too much detail in there. You know, again, there's a standard piece of advice on the CVs, which is give someone enough information to be interested in what you've done and not enough that there aren't any questions they need to ask. You know, so I would want to see, especially, again, with this very different situation, if you've got the exact skills for a job, that's exactly what somebody's going to be looking for. If you haven't, then the projects are really important because it's really good to understand what you've done and what you've achieved. Um, but, you know, the way the way you want to do it is to lure somebody in. So give me enough information that you intrigue me. You know, tell me that you invented an AI system that replaced humanity. But don't tell me how you did it, because then I've got to invite you to an interview to find out. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's where you want to do it is just really give give enough, give enough of a headline, enough to excite. And if they're if they can be made in any way relevant to the role, you know, again, this is where you, if you know somebody who's in the company or you know somebody who knows the role, you can start to understand a bit more about what the role involves. And then you can map what you've done to them. And you can start to look at what do those projects look like and how are they similar to how you perceive that role to be. And then you can show what the applicability of that project is. Cool, amazing. Um, this one's got a lot of votes to be fair and it's from Fatima and it's, I like tech, but I don't want to do coding. Um, what else could there be? You've kind of already answered that, but just to kind of like reframe again. Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, ADM or Scrum Master is a really good role. Agile Delivery Manager or Scrum Master because you're going to be around tech people all the time. You're going to have an influence in what happens with tech. I think the other one that we haven't really talked about um, is product manager. You know, so a lot of people who enjoy being in and around tech and want to influence tech and drive tech within companies, you know, will go off and become product managers. And a product manager is really the person who decides what to do. You know, we've we've talked a little bit about um, about agile delivery managers who are really about building code effectively. You know, and sometimes we talk about software developers as building the thing right. Uh, product managers are about building the right thing. So what is the right thing we want to build? What's the market that we're in? How do we want to be competitive in that market? How do we want to be at the forefront of that market? And really starting to drive the direction of the product forward. And that's what a product manager will do. You know, they're very much the voice of the customer. They care so much. I saw a couple of questions go past about you know, caring about customers. Product managers care deeply because they are representing the customer. And so product manager is a really good role where people who do care about tech and are really interested in tech want to go where they don't have to write code. Yeah. And just another quick reminder as well, we've got the link to the job board with uh, the tech roles on there. And there's quite a few with BT, internships, placements, graduate schemes. One of them uh, that we just added on yesterday is a product management graduate scheme as well. So check that out. And I actually used to be a product manager at BT Sport, actually. So, uh, and you can tell I'm not technical at all. And I, uh, I absolutely loved it. And I basically just told the developers, you know, change the color of this, make that do that instead, because I like the way it looks better. And it was fantastic. They did all the hard work. And so, that, very, yeah. that very first job that was in BT as well. I started in BT too. Ridiculous. This is it's crazy. <laughs> we need to go for a beer. <laughs> 
Um, all right, so speaking of product management, we've got a question from Jasmine, who's currently studying at Glasgow, and she's asked, what, like, do you have any advice on skills and steps she should take during her student time to build her profile? Um, again, I think certainly, especially while, while you're at university, I think one of the important things is to, to meet people, is to get out into the communities, is to understand what's going on, learn a little bit about the different ways that people would be product managers. And if you're in product manager, are we talking about product managers specifically? Yeah. So I think you know, go out, meet some product managers in product manager meetups or in product um, conferences and understand a little bit about how they're all differs. Again, being a product manager in Amazon is very different to being a product manager in a startup. Um, and just get that sense of perspective of what that would mean. I think the other thing is, you know, if possible, try and do um, some work experience with the company. You know, everyone's always looking for internships. Everyone's always looking for people to come in and help. And I think you can learn quite a lot that way. Um, again, current bias would say, if you go to do an internship in a smaller company, you'll probably get more hands-on experience. You'll probably get more exposure. And, you know, really throw yourself into it because I think then you really start to get a perspective of, A, what kind of company is for you, which we've talked about quite a lot, because that is, in case I didn't mention it, very, very important. Um, but also, you know, about the different roles that a product manager might take in different types of company, because a product management role will vary hugely according to how the company is operating and how software is built as well. So I think really it's about getting to talk to people, getting to meet people, getting exposure to, to different kinds of information. You can you know, expose yourself through some communities online, but anything you can do is a little bit more face-to-face, -face, I think is very helpful. Yeah, amazing. Um, so I've got one from Ronan here who has a college degree, but it's not in computer science, but is like using online learning platforms, for example, Code Academy, um, and they've been practicing for hours a day and they can definitely keep this up. They're wondering how do you think they can transition from getting these online credentials to securing an actual career? And do you think this is possible? Uh, so, yes, absolutely, it's possible. Um, 100%. I think that, again, going back to link a couple of the questions, I think if there's, as well as the learning, using the learning platforms, starting to build some, some actual projects, you know, having something that you can demonstrate. One of the things that, one of the things that we would do is we will often, when we're interviewing somebody, we have an option of running a code test for people. So, you know, especially we'll bring somebody in, we'll talk to them about their suitability, why they're interested in the company, um, but also we'll run a code test for them. But some, sometimes we'll, we won't do that code test. And the reason we won't do that code test is if they've got projects they can show us, through GitHub or something like that, they can show us that they've done. We'll look at that instead and we'll take that as a replacement for the code test. So I think if you can take that learning and you can put that into some projects, I mean, open source projects are always great for this because they're very public. Uh, but even if they're private projects, if there's something that you can share with a, an interviewer, then I think that can be very useful as well. But again, I think this comes down to finding the right place where, where that will work. Um, some places won't accept that and don't be disheartened if they don't. It just means it's not the right company for you at this point in your career. The right company will look at that learning. They will look at the fact that you're clearly passionate. You're clearly you know, excited to learn. Yeah, for me, that'd be an amazing thing. The fact that you're loving learning, the fact that you're loving doing new things, that's a great indicator that you're going to be successful as a software developer. So just build that portfolio that you can take and you can show to people. Um, and then look, you know, look for those roles and the chances will come. Um, so then I've got a few questions like, are external, 
are external certificates worth it? And would you recommend doing like a tech course such as AWS or doing a specific master's? So I think a master's is a slightly different question. So master's obviously can be quite useful. It's an interesting one because uh, one of the things we were talking about in the, in the lead up to this was a kind of a perceived elitism in software development. So I think, you know, again, going back 15 years, you had to have a degree to become a software developer. Like, you know, if you didn't have a two, one or above, you didn't get a chance. No one let you in the door. Nowadays, people recognize there are different ways of learning. You know, we've talked about learning platforms. We've talked about open source projects, just projects in general. You know, getting experience and learning doesn't have to happen through a formalized process. Um, but obviously, a formalized process is an indicator of learning, which is good. Um, certification exams can be very useful. For me personally, the learning behind them is the important thing rather than the exam itself. The exam is a statement of achievement. Um, but I think the learning that you get behind it is the thing that will come out. I think what can be useful for somebody is if you don't have formalized experience on your CV, if this is a new area for you, the certification exam can be an indication of seriousness. You know, if somebody hasn't got that experience and they've been, they've been off you know, working hard to get certification exams, you've got almost a proof that they're really committed to this. So whilst it's something that I have a, a very mixed reaction about, um, I think the learning is really, really important. And I think without other formal qualifications, it can be an indication that you're serious and you're really committed to doing something. Amazing. We've touched on this well earlier, but um, Stefan asked, as a developer, what is the best approach or technique to understand consumer requirements for the end user? Um, I think I saw this one go past and I was, I was hoping this was one of the ones you wouldn't ask me. because I mean, <laughs> It's quite a hard one. I think it depends very much on the kind of the kind of project. I think one of the things that's really important is you need to think like an end user. You have to be an end user. You know, it's really easy when you're a software developer developer to think like a software developer mm -hmm. and you've really got to be you've really got to be able to think about using software itself so there's a phrase that google uses that you might hear use which is called eating your own dog food and so a lot of bigger companies a lot of smaller companies where they can will implement this where if it's a product that you use yourself you have to use the latest version so a classic example was in microsoft um, pe people in Microsoft will be on Windows 2027 or Excel 2027 because they're, they're dog, they call it dog fooding. They're dog fooding their own product. So that way you have to feel what it's like to use the product as a customer. And most companies will try to get you to do that. So I think, you know, if you really understand what the customer is trying to achieve, rather than, you know, like I say, as a tech person, it's really easy to get caught up in. This is so cool, right? I've got this really cool idea. I know how to do it and I'm going to do it. It's just so cool. But a customer wouldn't actually care. You know, it's really great. If you were making, uh, I'm just thinking of a mug because I've got a mug sat in front of me. It'd be cool to have a mug with wheels on because then I can move around the desk like really, really fast and really easily. But actually no one wants a mug with wheels on. But it would be a cool technical challenge to, to make. Uh, but no one wants one because it's just not necessary. And I think that's the thing you do tend to get caught up. So think like a customer, think of what you're actually doing. Think of what you're actually trying to achieve. What's the problem you're solving? You know, if your solution is the solution to a question, what's the question? And I think if you start to think about the question and there are ways, if you, if you look at some of the, um, some of the software techniques like test-driven development, like behavioral driven development, there are ways of phrasing statements 
that very much put them in the domain of the customer. And I think those are quite interesting as you start to look at those. The phrasing, it, although it sounds like it's a really small detail, actually flipping the phrasing is really, really interesting in changing your mindset. Having a look at things like test-driven development and BDD, behavior-driven development, are really important, and they can really help you slightly differently. Cool. Amazing. Um, Miracle asked, what is the interview process for a, for a software engineer? Uh, so it would, again, apologies for saying the same thing a million times, but it will depend on the company. Uh, for us, we would tend to, we'll tend to look at um, people first. So we'll look at bringing somebody in, understanding uh, a little bit about their motivation, understanding who they are, a little bit about what they've done. I think one thing I keep forgetting to say, which I've now remembered, so I'll say what I think about it. When you go for an interview, make sure you're passionate about the company. Right? Make sure you're really keen about what they do or make sure you're really good at faking it. Um, but it's like people will smell if you if you aren't that interested in the role and that will cause you to fail. Um, you know, there's, nothing, there's nothing more enticing as an interviewer than when somebody turns up to an interview and they're really excited about your product. Right? It's, it's such a nice thing. Whereas when somebody turns up and you say, hey, so why would you want to join Unidays? And they go, well... The recruiter kind of put me onto it because it paid more than my last job. And it's like, that's an instant no. You know, whereas somebody turns up and they go, well, I wasn't really looking for a job, but, you know, it's a, it's a company I've wanted to work for my whole life because I'm really excited about this, this, and this. And it doesn't have to be the company you've wanted to work for your whole life. You know, we've all got one of those, but it doesn't have to be that company. But if you're excited and passionate about the product, it will come across and it will make a difference. Um, and so I think, you know, so the, fir the first stage for us would always be about the person. You know, what have they done? What are they interested in? What are they looking for? Um, and why, why are they interested in the role at Unidates? And then if that goes well, like I say, the next part will generally be a coding test. Um, so that can be replaced by projects they've done before if they've got something they want to show that's suitable. Then we'll take them to them and we'll give them a few more detailed technical questions. But it will depend upon the level that we think the person's at. So if you're talking about somebody coming in who's a junior who's got less experience, you know, maybe somebody's got no experience coming in for a first role, then this will be more around why they want to do it, what do they know already, how are they thinking about it, you know, really kind of understanding that, yeah, you know, they've really got passion for doing this. They're excited, they've got an understanding of what it is, and they've done the basics of kind of, you know, we know what software is, we know what the theory is. Um, it might be someone who knows quite a lot about software, but has just never had a job. Um, those are great. And if you get somebody who really is excited about building software, you know, giving them their first opportunity is amazing. It's a great feeling. But if you've got someone who's a senior, you're going to take them through much more depth of questions in terms of, you know, certain techniques, certain tools, certain patterns. And so we kind of will adjust it to the level that we think somebody's at. But in most companies, you'll tend to get and you know a, a general interviewer just to make sure you're you know you're right for the role you're the right kind of person you're interested in the company and you'll get a more technical interview um which will then go to a different level depending upon the, the depth they think you're at yeah amazing i'm pretty sure everyone found that so useful so did i um we've got a question from chimdi and they've asked what skills do you think are vital for a talent acquisition slash hr role in tech it's a bit different yeah um Vital, I mean, the, I'd say the vital skills are really more around the people and being able to, I think, especially in tech for that kind of role, 
you need to have very good skills at drawing information out to people because you will meet a lot of people who are reluctant communicators. Um, and so to be able to draw the best out of them, I think is really important. Um, so I think communication skills are really important. Being able to being able to inspire people is really important. Being able to draw information, understand how to ask questions is really important. Um, if you can, you know, if you can have a basic understanding or ability to understand tech, I think mm -hmm. that's really helpful. You know, there's nothing from a tech person's point of view. There's nothing more disheartening than talking to a recruiter who doesn't understand anything about what you're talking about, and they just you can see them mentally scanning, going, right, you said that word, that's a tick. You said that word, that's a tick. But you know they've got no appreciation of what you do. Whereas if when you meet someone who can talk to you at a basic level and ask some basic questions, you don't expect them to be a developer. But having an appreciation of you know when you've done something that's impressive or not, I think is is quite useful. But I think you know what I'm saying. One of the most important skills is being able to talk to people who are reluctant to talk, because you will meet a lot of them. Yeah. Am I frozen? Or am I okay? No, no, you're, you're good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, sweet. Um, so I've also got a question about: Do you have any tips for product design or UX UI roles? Yeah, I mean, again, um, so you know, we're we're in the process. We've been hiring product designers um, over the last few months. Portfolio is really important. You know, with product design in particular, having a good portfolio is really important. So I think building projects, you know, if, if you're not doing them within a role, building projects in your spare time, having something you can talk about, having something you can demonstrate, having thoughts and opinions across a range of things is, is essential. And I think you know, one of the advantages that, that we've got is that with a lot of the online platforms, we can start to do some of this without having to have a role in the first place. So that barrier to entry ought to be less. But certainly, you know, for a product designer, most product design or UX UI roles will ask you to do some kind of task. They'll give, they'll set you some kind of problem, um, which will be related to their business domain. And they'll ask you to spend half an hour or an hour, hopefully not too much more, on coming up with your thoughts and presenting those back so they can use that as discussion points. And I think, you know, a portfolio of things there can be very, very helpful. Amazing. Um, I've got a question from Williams who's asked, are there good places in the UK outside of London for tech for tech jobs? Um, well, I mean, Unidays is based in Nottingham. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> but I think, you know, increasingly, again, post-COVID, the world's becoming increasingly remote. So I think most roles nowadays tend to be hybrid or remote. Mm -hmm. um, so there are places, there are places outside of London, but even a lot of roles that are in London don't actually require you to be in London nowadays. Um, and I think that will happen increasingly. So I think, you know, as you start to look at it, we see it already where because of COVID, fewer people are going to the office. Therefore, the investment that a lot of companies have in offices is less valuable. Therefore, spending that amount of investment on offices in London doesn't really make any sense because why would you pay a premium if you're going mm -hmm. to have an office when people aren't going there? So I think, I think this trend will continue. And I think whilst I think going into an office is useful because that social contact is really important, um, they won't, the only reason why you would pick on somewhere like London would be because it's easy to get to. So I think as people, as people evolve a little bit more, the offices will move out of London to other places that are easy to get to, that are maybe a bit cheaper. 
but for today, you know, there's a lot of roles which are remote. Um, there's there's certainly there's a lot of banking roles um, in Scotland, in Edinburgh in particular, um, but there are little hubs all over the place. As a UK is always hiring in Nottingham. Amazing, Toby. How how are we doing for time? Should I ask the? Can I ask the panel two? Yeah, let's just get to the these last uh, two. Yeah, yeah, and then we'll we'll let you go, John. I think we've got we've got another ten minutes or so. So let's just get get these two, and then we'll okay. we'll head out. Amazing. I wouldn't even answer to this, but Avalon asks, what methodology would be used for creating a VR application? And again, I, th I think it depends on what the VR application would do, because there's a lot of, you know, so one of, the, one of the things with the VR application is a lot of the time, there's a lot of predictability about what you need to create. So therefore, you could you could even reverse something like Waterfall, because you know what you have to do, you know there are a certain set of steps to get there, and so Waterfall could be very useful. Most companies nowadays wouldn't, um, so I think a lot of companies in that kind of situation would probably use something that's a bit more like Scrum. Um, a lot of companies implement Scrum quite badly, and it looks like iterative waterfall. So basically, what I mean by that is doing things in small, well-defined chunks. So yeah, most companies nowadays work on two-week cycles for delivering small chunks of work. And the really cool thing about two-week cycles, from kind of everyone's perspective, is you can't make much of a mistake in two weeks. Not much can go wrong. So old waterfall style projects tended to run for like 18 months at a time. And so between now and 18 months time, you can get things really badly wrong if you want to. Uh, in two weeks, less so. Yeah, there was, a, there was a data point when I was at Amazon and the Amazon website would be deployed every 11 seconds. And when you look at it, you go, how much can you get wrong in 11 seconds? It's not a lot. So therefore, you know, the changes are really, really tiny. So if you do make a mistake, trying to correct a problem that took 11 seconds to create can only take a maximum of 11 seconds. Right? So it's all fixed and done in 22 seconds, whatever happens. But I think, you know, going back to a VR application, I think it's most likely to be a kind of a scrum, scrum type methodology, but it will depend very much on what it does and how well known that is beforehand. And if you're building something that's really well defined, you can plan it out and you can plan into iterations. Whereas if, what you do next month might depend upon what you do today, um, then you'll want to be a lot more agile about it. And that Avalon's just said a big thank you. That was uh, that was super useful. So um, thanks for that, that John. And, and uh, just as we get to the last question, uh, do do add your comments. Let us know what you thought of the, the session and uh, what you're getting out of it and, and all that kind of thing. We want these. We do these just for you guys. So um, just. Drop us a comment uh, as to what you thought and, and uh, yeah, anything else that you want to share that might help us. So please do share that as we get to the last question. But yeah, Lola, over to you. Yeah, so um, the last question is from Abdurazak. I hope I said that right. But they've said, I've recently done a Bachelor of Science Foundation business analyst, I'm guessing, um, year, and they're finding it very difficult to find a job to gain experience. Any advice? Um, again, I think... With this, it would be a case of finding a way to meet people in the community. I think whether that be looking for internships, which I imagine you've already thought about, um, but getting out maybe into some meetups uh, and finding people, maybe looking for the maybe looking for people who are working in some companies that you might be interested in, um, really just to try and find companies that would be looking to recruit in this space. I think with a, a business analyst type role as well, it can be quite difficult because people tend to look for more senior
business analysts. But if you're looking at startups, you know, a lot of startups might might think this is a really good opportunity to bring someone in and grow them within the company environment. So I think it's probably a case of you want to look for startup type companies. Um, you want to look for maybe somewhere where you can go in and make an initial impression. But if you can if you can meet people from those companies at a meetup, you know, whether it be around a specific area that you're interested in or just a general business analyst meetup, then you can start to grow the network. And I think that network becomes the key. Very good. And uh, yeah, again, lots of nice, uh, lots of nice messages and, and thank yous in the, in the comments, John. So I just want to say uh, again, um, massive thank you to you, John, for giving up a little bit of your time to, or a lot of your time. Mm. I know you're incredibly busy. <laughs> this has taken us, we've been trying to plan this session for a while, but John's uh, busy shipping things all, all, all day long. So um, really do massively appreciate you taking some time out of your, your diary. And um, I'm sure this is going to have a, a lasting impact. So everyone, if you could, as I said, let us know what you think in the comments before you, you shoot off. And then also let us know, you know, if you get a role in any of these areas or or whatever, please do send us those those through. We love those success stories. So let us know where you get on from here. We're going to be continue to send you tech opportunities. As I mentioned, we've got the BT uh, link at the top, and, and I think there's a uh, another another one or two tech roles in there as well to check out. And we're going to be having more tech roles at Unidays coming. And I can definitely vouch for a few days as a fantastic place to work. We've got quite a few individuals from our community uh, loving life at um, at new days. And Hamdi, the link is the one that should be pinned to the top of the chat, the current tech roles right at the beginning. Um, but yeah, there'll be union days opportunities to come in as well. So we're going to let you know about those via email. Use all of the tips and all the things that you've learned from John as you go and uh, uh forward from here it would be a real shame if you sort of wasted what you've um you know you're going to go on to this and, and do whatever you need to do with your, your evening but please do hold on to a lot of those important lessons you've learned from john and put in place one and two if you can it will really help your your tech career um but john thanks so much is there anything you'd like to say just as a goodbye or no i think you know thank you very much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure to be here and you know obviously if there's anything i can do to help in the future i'd love to love to help do it yeah, it's been a lot of fun to be here to talk about these kind of roles, to answer questions. And to be honest, it's lovely to be here to demystify the tech space a little bit. You know, there is this whole, as I said, I've said this before, and there is this whole area of elitism about it. And I think it's not, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, it doesn't have to be hierarchical. It doesn't have to be this place where people get locked in corners in boot cupboards. It's, you know, it can be a fun place to work. We do a lot of things that are really interesting and really fun. And I think in the right companies, you know, it's a really, it's a really great place to be. And I think, you know, as I said, the one thing I would love that everyone takes away from this more than anything is when you apply for a job, it's not just about whether you've got the skills to do the job. It's about whether you're a match for the company. Often, if you don't succeed, it will be because you're not a match for the company. You know, if you walk away from an interview and it wasn't successful and you think, well, I think I answered all the questions really well. The reason you didn't get the job is because you weren't a match for the company. So, again, easy for me to sit here and say, but don't be disheartened. Don't think that means you're in any way any kind of failure. It just means you didn't match. You'll get some jobs where you, you don't think you deserved it because you were an amazing match and no one cared about anything else. And you'll get other jobs that you think you, you won't get other jobs that you think you deserve because you weren't a match. But there are those two things, and no one ever really thinks about the matching part. 
So important, John. Yeah, I massively appreciate you, you saying that. And I think it's super helpful for anyone who's been through any rejections in the past um, to get that perspective and, and kind of keep pushing on forward. So I've learned an absolute ton. Um, I didn't I didn't know that there was a space for me in the world of uh, tech with my uh, my poor planning abilities. But apparently there is. So I'm going to go look into that a bit more. Um, but yeah, thanks, John. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have you on again at another point to, to do a part two. But um, let's leave it there. And yeah, best of luck, everyone, as well. Thanks so much, John. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone.